So let me talk about some of my uh, areas of happiness. So here's like me in 2009. Okay, 2009 Wilson. I wish I wrote that as a header. That would have been helpful. Um, but some of the things that was bringing me joy in 2009 was I had a girlfriend of like three years, and I was a big fan of her. I really liked her. Ministry was going well. I was a teaching pastor at my old church, and I was able to teach pretty regularly, even write the curriculum oftentimes. Great family and friends. Um, even though our family struggled a little bit, we were still like tight-knit. We loved each other. A lot of friends through ministry. And then uh, seminary was going pretty good. I, I really enjoyed what I was learning, being able to interact with other pastors, and then also Jesus, right? Jesus contributed to my happiness as well. Uh, maybe some sports and so on, gaming. Um, and then in 2010, a lot of losses in my life um, in a short period of time. So me and my girlfriend broke up, and that was pretty painful, and we kind of left it open-ended, which um, for most of you guys is probably a bad idea, by the way. Um, just wanted you to know that. And then seminary was really hard. I, I couldn't pass Greek. I tried three times to pass that class, and I kept failing. I took Adderall. I still failed, and I couldn't even blame my ADHD anymore, which really sucks, you know? Like, if you have an excuse, it's great. But if you take drugs, and then you can't do it, it's just like, oh, that's your fault, right? So that was crappy. And then um, in ministry, I upset my senior pastor really bad. I forgot what I did, but I had, a, like, a, a nameplate outside my office door that said, like, Pastor Wilson, and he went, and he took that off, and he replaced it, and it said intern. And not even my name, just intern, right? Like, he was really mad at me to change out my nameplate and then, uh, you know, cut my salary, all of that. He was really upset. I forgot what I did. I must have done something really bad because he's a pretty reasonable guy. So I'm just saying. And then family and friends. Um, my family was having a really hard time financially during that time. None of us had a job. Even though my parents worked really hard, my dad applied to many places. But that was just a rough financial time in our family life, even though we were still close. And then I just felt like because um, these major categories of happiness had been taken away, that I just kind of gave up a little bit and fell into depression. And probably for about four or five months, really had a hard time enjoying even the things that were present, like mountain biking, uh, hanging out with friends, just things started to feel dull and, and boring. And I think that oftentimes, this is how we perceive happiness, right? We have it in the center of our lives, and we try to wrap as many things around it as possible, and different things contribute in different ways. And when we feel empty in one category, we go find another circle to fill it. And if that's what composes our happiness, we're often either controlling and trying to maintain that circle and not let it leave, or we become fearful. And when those places of happiness are threatened, we start to shrink back or we start to live in anxiety. And, and it's a pretty secular view, but oftentimes we hold it as well in Jesus or church or ministry just becomes one circle um, attached to being happy. Well, when you look at life, um, these circles can be so flimsy and fragile, and oftentimes they are just sweeped out from under us. And even as you think about that question of what 
aspects of happiness has been pulled away from you. I, I think all of us, if we, if we were honest or able to share, have some pretty major categories that at least for some seasons or in a permanent way that we lost hold of, that started to kind of disappear. And I think about Jesus and his disciples in John chapter 16, as Jesus is wrapping up this Last Supper discourse, this really intimate conversation just between Jesus and the people who loved him, his closest friends, his disciples. He walks into Jerusalem. People are trying to anoint him as king. They put down palm branches. They say, Hosanna, um, you know, the king. And, and, and he's coming in triumphantly as his disciples were perceiving to take over the Roman Empire. And as we go into the Last Supper discourse, we see him say a lot of unsettling things. He talks about being betrayed by his disciples. And even more so, he talks about them leaving him, but him also leaving them. And he repeats this phrase in all of the discourse about nine times. In a little while, you will see me no more. Then after a little while, you will see me. Jesus is saying that to his disciples. And it's almost a riddle. It's like a really frustrating riddle that his disciples just aren't getting, right? Have you ever had one of those riddles your friends tell you, like, this guy died, there's a puddle of water, how did he die? And then they just, like, let you think about it for four days and never tell you the answer. I think that's how, like, Jesus was, uh, his disciples were feeling. Like, Matt, are you just trying to make us feel stupid? Like, you said this riddle eight times already, we still don't get it. And then, um, oh, I'm sorry. And then, oh, sorry. PowerPoint, next slide. Okay, okay, okay. All right, back in control. So um, his disciples say to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and because I'm going to my father? They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. So you kind of see the frustration and, and how the disciples aren't, aren't getting it. And then in the, in the next verse, Jesus sees how they're asking about this and how they want to ask him. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I say, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? So now he moves from a riddle to like more hints, right? Okay, you guys aren't getting it? Let me hand out some hints to you. And he starts moving this analogy into childbirth and into their emotion as they move into this next season. So what Jesus is referring to is he's going to the cross. After this Last Supper discourse, he's going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas is going to come up, betray him with a kiss. The soldiers are going to take him away. Disciples are going to scatter, and he's going to be put to death. And he's going to be away from, from them for three days, and then he's going to resurrect again, and they'll be together, right? So that's what he's saying. I'm going to be away from you from a little longer. You won't see me. That's his death um, and, and his burial and the crucifixion. And then after a while, you will see me. That's his resurrection. And then he, but with his disciples, he starts to kind of drop how they'll feel about it. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve but your grief will turn to joy. So he's saying that during his crucifixion and his burial, they're going to be weeping and mourning while Satan and the rules, rulers of this world rejoice. But when he resurrects, they're gonna, their sadness will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. 
But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. I was watching the video of Belinda giving birth, and I just felt so bad for Justin. Because, <laughs> like, in the video, he's just like, oh, this is not, uh, right? And it's like, oh, my gosh. And I, I don't know how to relate to Belinda, but I'm like, poor Justin. <laughs> it must be so hard for him. But obviously, she's going through a lot of pain as well. And then, and then the best part is, like, she gives birth, right? And you see this baby, and then you get a slow clap from her brother, Matthew. And then the video is like, just like amazed, right? And then the next, and after Belinda, like, you know, looks great again, we go visit her and we hold the baby. And, and even though we talk about the birthing process, there's, it's overcome. It's, it's over, the baby and the joy of the baby overwhelms the pain. It takes it over. And that's what Jesus is saying to his disciples, that you're going to be in such deep grief as I am crucified, put to death, buried. But when I resurrect, there's going to be this great joy. And he, he reinstates that in verse 22. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Man, what a bold claim that you're going to have joy that is untouchable. You're going to have joy that no one can touch. I, I just, when I read that at first, I just kind of like, I felt like the Bible was lying to me, you know? Like, how do we get a joy that is, is impenetrable, is, is permanent? In verse 23, it says, In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. So as I was reading this text, um, I, I started forming my message around this concept of joy. And I would say that it's a little bit more systematic than it is textual, meaning that I pull back from the text and I look at joy from a larger perspective, from maybe more, more scripture than is allotted for here. But then I tie the text back into that, okay? So if you'll allow me, we're going to talk about joy as a larger system, and then we're going to look at how the text informs that system. So it's a little bit different um, than most, most weeks. So here, here's my current happiness. Um, Nina's in there. I love, you know, this church and Epic, and I get to do apartment life as ministry, Jesus. Um, volleyball, it used to be b-ball, but, you know, now it's volleyball. Uh, I could buy a new pool stick, so if anyone wants to get hustled, I would love to do that. And then um, vainglory. Sin brings happiness, right? Or else I wouldn't sin. So there's that. And then um, family and friends also bring happiness. And so we have kind of all the things that make up my personal happiness. And I think on the card, some of what makes up your personal happiness. And that's how we see uh, happiness. Again, that's how the secular world kind of describes it and prescribes it to us. And then we have this concept of joy, which I think, um, even though the world uses it or our society uses it, it's really strictly a Christian con concept. Joy is used 400 times in the Bible, especially as you uh, include like rejoice and joyful and all of that. So the Bible talks about it a lot, and it gives us framework for what joy is um, through Scripture. And so 
when we think about joy, here's what I think is the biblical concept of joy. It's, it's, happiness is systemic of it, but it's not required. So when we are joyful, sometimes we also feel happy. But joy is really um, something that resides in our heart. It's a constant. It's, it's the, a way that you view life and how that view kind of informs your soul. Joy is, has this consistency to it where we trust Jesus, it comes out of Jesus, and it brings us happiness. And this happiness can be momentarily, like we're experiencing God's promises and blessing in this moment, but also joy uh, supersedes that because it could be a future happiness, where even in the turmoil of life, we think about uh, the future kingdom, or we think about how God will restore that, or we think about Jesus still being present in our lives, and we're able to have joy even when the circumstances are difficult. And so um, what is our greatest source of joy? The Bible talks about joy as having to come through the Holy Spirit or through Christ. So when you think about the fruit of the Spirit in Ephesians, joy is at the top of that list, meaning that only through the Spirit can you have joy. It's a byproduct of the work of the Spirit. We think about Ecclesiastes as, you know, uh, Solomon is pursuing all kinds of joy, but it leads him nowhere. He's able to experience happiness through a lot of what he's going through, through, through his experimentation with wisdom, with women, with fame and fortune, uh, with success, and yet there's this emptiness to it. And that's what sin and idols can offer us. It can offer us momentary pleasure or happiness, but the Bible uses a totally different word when it talks about joy. And happiness doesn't necessarily, has no connection in terms of leading us to joy. It's temporary and it's circumstantial. And so in this Christian construct, we have joy coming out from Jesus and Jesus then giving us all of these other things, right? So through Jesus, I'm able, if I'm really experiencing joy, I'm subjugating all my other circles of happiness under him. So they're not, they're not separate from him like the previous graph where there's all these isolated categories that give me happiness and Jesus and church just happen to be one of those circles. In, in this idea of joy, Jesus is the source of me playing volleyball and playing pool and playing Vainglory, my favorite video game on the iPhone, um, and ministry and Nina and friends and, and family. And if it's not connected to Jesus, then it's not truly connected to joy. And oftentimes these things float around, right? Sometimes it's connected to Jesus, but sometimes it floats into the idol category. And some idols and sins are really apparent, and we call them out, and other people call them out in our lives. But I think what's more um, subversive is when these positive things start disconnecting from Jesus and start floating on their own. And once they float on their own, like the other graph, they become an idol. Jesus isn't the source anymore. We aren't worshiping him, and we're, we're getting something outside of him. And that's what idolatry is. And so I often find like Nina and ministry and family and friends uh, starting to disconnect from Jesus and connecting to idol idols and bringing me happiness outside of Christ. So how do we strengthen this arm of connectedness to Jesus? Because if this is an accurate graph of my life, I'd say that all the time there's an arm from idol into all of these areas. And sometimes 
Very few times is it completely disconnected. And sometimes this is completely disconnected. Does that make sense? So even when I'm doing ministry, even as I'm preaching now, there's probably some idolatry in there and there's some Jesus as well. That we all have kind of this mixed bag when it comes to why we do and how we gain pleasure. And so strengthening this arm of connectedness between all of these areas of of joy and, and happiness and ministry to Jesus is really important. So how do we strengthen that arm? Well, let me give you three ideas, and, maybe, and hopefully you could think of some yourself as well. I feel like one of, the, one of the ways that we strengthen that arm is by understanding Jesus as the source. He's the one who allows me to have Nina in my life in a healthy way. He's the one who's opened up ministry for me. He's the one who's allowing me to play volleyball, shoot pool well, you know, play vainglory on my iPhone. If Jesus isn't the source of those categories of, of happiness and pleasure, then something else is. And then that source will be what we worship and what we give credit to. Does that make sense? So have we connected all of the dots, all of the pleasures to Jesus in a real, tangible, on-the-ground way where, where it inspires us to worship? that we've connected our happiness to Jesus as the source, we've recognized that, and then it inspires us to worship him. Because it's easy to draw this graph and to say, oh yeah, everything that I find enjoyable in my life, I attribute to Jesus, but not really see like on the ground practical connection points. So what are some ways that you found Jesus to be the source of all of your pleasure? For me, uh, in some ways, it's easy for me in terms of volleyball because I have no ACLs. And every time I walk onto a volleyball court, I pray, God, please don't let me hurt my knee, right? And so as I'm playing volleyball, I'm like, thank you, Jesus, that my knee isn't sprained yet, you know? And then especially the fourth hour, I'm fatigued. I'm like, God, I've, I love playing volleyball. Thank you for allowing me to play volleyball. But even when I had ACLs and I played basketball, it really is still Jesus allowing me to do it, right? He gave me the legs to function, the muscles, my phenomenal hand, co- hand and eye coordination, not speaking ability, but hand and eye coordination. And so how have we, in very practical, detailed ways, say, Jesus, you are the source. And if we're doing that, then we're worshiping him as we engage in our happiness. So worship is evidence to saying that it's really Jesus. And if we're, if we're not worshiping Jesus as we're experiencing those joys in our life, we've probably attributed it to ourselves or to something else. I think the last way that we can strengthen that arm in connecting our joys to Jesus is by involving him in our joy. It's by saying, Jesus, would you, be, would you partake in this activity with me? Will we do it together? Will we experience it together? So when I'm with Nina, um, you know, I try to stop and just pray, right? When, when we're waking up and she's like, she takes a long time to get out of bed. Uh, she's a night person. I'm a morning person. So I just kind of watch her struggle. And it's really cute, you know? And I'm like, God, thank you so much for my wife. And she's like moaning and like almost lifting her arm, you know? And um, it was just wonderful. And then other times we're at Disneyland and I just kind of take a step back. And I'm like, God, thank you so much that I get to be with Nina and, and be with you and enjoy you in this moment. And then there's moments where I forget about Jesus. Um, just a couple of days ago, I was doing a ministry at the apartments, and it just became a burden, 
right? I wasn't engaging him anymore. And I just kind of severed him from that ministry. So how can we strengthen this arm? We do it through finding tangible ways in which he's the source. We do it by worshiping him as the source. And we do it by including him in our joys. Uh, one of the things I loved doing was mountain biking. And it was like, I used to just mountain bike and it was a lot of fun. But then I, it became like the spiritual discipline where I had like prayer stations at different parts of the mountain as I was ascending. And it would, I would reflect on different aspects of life. Like the f- worst climb, I would think about the struggles I had and present them to God. And then there would be a part where it flattens out and I think about the things I'm thankful for. And I'd be at the top of the hill. I would see, uh, oversee the cemetery, Rose Hills, and I would think about the the brevity of life and how it's so short and how I want to use it for the Lord. Then I would go screaming down the mountain, and there's times where I would just pray, God, don't let me die, you know? And and that was, but I've completely integrated my time cycling with the Lord, and it was amazing. And I wonder how we can find Jesus in all of the joys, because once, again, once we sever that arm, it's not connected with him. It becomes an idol or we start worshiping something else. Um, so when we think, of, don't worry, this graph doesn't like continue to expand forever. But um, when we think about our joys, there's different things that come, that it, it, it brings joy because, right? So for Nina, there's a few things that, there's many things, but here's a few that I gain, that I gain joy through her, because of her. So one of them is togetherness. I am less alone. And being married doesn't solve loneliness uh, completely. There's a lot of times where we're emotionally distant or she just doesn't get me or, you know, she's away from me. But it, it, it's nice. Like, it's a, it's a big perk, being able to wake up and fall asleep with someone and hang out with your best friend, as they say, and it's true, is really good. And we, we have a pretty good marriage, right? So I'm, that togetherness is really good. Um, feeling loved by her, and maybe even more so, being able to, like, dump all of my love into someone and have them not run away is phenomenal. <laughs> like, being able to, like, love someone to my greatest capacity, and she's, like, receiving it, and then she's, like, tired, right? But she doesn't run. And... Um, that's amazing, and being able to be loved by someone is really amazing as well, and, and be able to be vulnerable and know that we're committed to each other. I don't think you can love someone like that if you think they're going to walk away from you. So I feel like that marriage piece of lifelong commitment allows you to really love in an in a unhindered way. And then there's ministry partnership, right? Because of ministry, we get to do Renew Church. I, there's no way we could have this without her. And then being able to do apartment life and so on and so forth. All right, um, but there's times in our lives where these major categories of joy are taken away, are, are stripped from our lives, and we talked about that a little bit. And I, I know that there's times in my life where me and Nina are fighting, or there might be a time one day where she goes first, and I'm left with all of these vacancies, right? I, I, we debate, and I, I told her I want to leave first, but, you know, we don't get to choose that, right, in terms of death and so on. But, um, but there's other times where we're just fighting, and we have this huge season where we just, we're just not connecting. And then I'm left with all of these um, things unfilled, the togetherness and the love. I feel lonely instead of together. I feel 
maybe hated instead of loved, and she th threatens to quit CM, maybe never, and then I'm like worried that all of Renew will fall apart, right? And isn't that true that when something's taken out of your life, that it's not just that one object be taken out, but it's all these other categories that feel now empty, that feel vacant, that you start longing for. And that's where the pain comes in. I, I think about that analogy where a woman is going through pain, and, and that's, what I think, what Jesus is saying when he leaves the disciples and he's gone for a little bit. It's like a major category is being stripped away. And, and in that, there is pain. In that, there is suffering. And yet, when we think about how we resolve that suffering, it allows us to either have joy in this way that no one can take away, or it makes us more idolatrous. So let me explain that to you. When me and Nina are fighting, and I feel the loneliness, and it's so hard to be alone, like, and to have that emotional dissonance, and I'm feeling that pain, I have two options, right? I can take that loneliness and then go to family and friends and say, you guys resolve that for me. I could take that loneliness and go to, like, um, my sins and say, okay, I'm just going to numb this pain and go to sin. And Ken has sh shared, like, the most... Like traumatic message about numbing pain. You guys all remember that, right? So we don't want to numb anything, right? Um, so we could, but we could do that. And all sin gives this numbing effect plus pleasure. And so it resolves pain. Or Jesus is saying that we can have joy birthed in the pregnancy of pain. We can experience the pain. We can hold it. We can say, yeah, God, I do feel alone. But it wasn't Nina who was that source. And it's not these other things that I want to go to. Would you come and would you resolve this place of loneliness? And, you know, Jesus tells his disciples, you have to wait for a little while. And we're in a culture where we just cannot stand being in pain. We suck at it. We take aspirin all day. We medicate our emotional pain with all kinds of addictions. But, but if we're willing to allow pain, to allow ourselves to reside in pain and to turn to Jesus, there's the pain functions as birthing out joy a joy that no one can take away, a joy that resides solely in Christ. And, you know, all of these things can be threatened and can be pulled out from under us at any point. But Jesus is the only constant. He's the only one that's always there, that is always present, that will never fail. And so if I can go from Man, I'm really hurting because me and Nina are having this really hard season. I'm feeling alone, but I'm not going to go to habitual sin. I'm not just going to fill it in with face Facebook likes. I'm not just going to uh, blast my dancing video, you know. I'm actually going to go to Jesus. I'm actually going to feel it and say, Jesus, I'm just going to sit here till you resolve that, till you come. And I experience togetherness with Jesus in a, in a different way 
that won't be taken away. You know, sin, it's so temporary and it will be stripped and other things can be our idols, but they will falter and be incomplete and be unsatisfying at a certain point. But Jesus gives us joy in a way that will never be taken from us because he'll never be taken from us. And those moments where he prunes, because we know he does, we know that a good vine dresser cuts two-thirds to seven-eighths of their, of their grapes, right? We learned that three weeks ago. There's times in, his, in our lives where he prunes us, where he cuts joys out of our lives. And those are the only moments that, that James talks about. We, we have joy in trial. Why? Because it shows us whether these things are really under Jesus. We don't know that until, until we hit trials. We don't know whether they're really subjugated to Jesus and whether they're really sourced by him, whether we're really worshiping him through these other joys until we hit trial and we're tested. Then we know. And that's why James is excited about testing because it allows us to see reality. And in that testing, we're also growing our faith and coming to a place where we can find Jesus in those places. And then when Nina steps back into the picture, my, my connection, that arm with Jesus, is so much stronger. Mm, I'll skip that. So... Um, what part of this joy chart is Jesus working on in your life? As you, as you kind of sit and think about the places that he's challenging, the places that we say, okay, I put in this chart, I put it under Jesus, but actually it probably belongs in the idol section. One of the, the circles that God's starting to diminish in your life or even strip out. And you're saying, man, He's actually working on this. He's working on me tightening that, tethering myself to him instead of these other things. You know. Um, and then how can I, as you guys ask each other, how can I pray for Jesus to be the source of your joy this week? How can we pray for each other? Um, I hope that we would just be honest, because, you know, even for me, I, I know that all of these things that I put in that chart under Jesus, there's idolatrous parts of that. Actually, planting a church, man, like, I've dreamt about this since fifth grade, and it's here. Like, wow, we started a church together. But when you wait for something for that long, all this idolatry just kind of creeps in, right? When, when I married Nina, I was so happy, but I've been waiting to marry Nina for my whole life. And now that she's actually in my life, I see all of the idolatry. I think that's the disappointment of success or reaching our dreams, is that we find it to diminish more than we thought it would. But in those moments, we see Jesus as well. So how is Jesus showing you himself and trying to tether himself to you in the pain that is pregnant, but birthing joy, that there's function in that pain? There's a reason, and it's birthing this joy where we are tethering ourselves to him in a way where it can never be broken, that our joy can never be lost. What a promise that Jesus makes to his disciples. When I resurrect, 
And when you depend on me and when you see me, that's never, your joy will not be taken away by anyone. I think that's what we want this morning. So God, we just come to you and each other. And I pray that we would just be able to think deeply about our own lives, about even the present pain that we're going through. Um, how it's, it's this pregnancy um, of real joy, of us tethering all of our needs, all of our wants to you. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would just contextualize this really complicated graph into our lives, that we would see us in it, and we would see how you are working, and we would, we would be willing to wait in the pain, God. We would be willing to wait, that we wouldn't medicate ourselves, that we wouldn't desire numbness in our lives. God, that we would sit with the pain of loneliness, sit with the pain of loss, sit with the pain of failure, and wait for our Savior to come and bring life in ways that nothing else can, in ways that are permanent, in ways that flow from you. In Jesus' name. Would you just take a minute to just share and pray with each other? I, just, I think that would just be so rich if you would just share um, some of the ways that you've experienced pain and how you want Jesus to um, tether himself to you and you to him. And then after that, you would take communion as well as a group. So I would love if you could share, pray in your groups, and then get up together and take communion together and just remember um, Jesus' death and his sacrifice in order to bring you joy, um, in order to be your source.